Hi everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Espensky. Today we are discussing chapter 18. This is part 3. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. So Pete, we're continuing with uh, part three of chapter 18. I'm guessing you had a good week. Your pubs have been opened. Have you been there yet? No, um, pubs only opened yesterday. I went to a pub that my neighbour has built in his back garden. So uh, he's he's converted a, a shed and it's fantastic. We had a few brandies there, but... No, I'm not going out until they remove these silly guidelines, uh, these nonsensical, useless, hoax-ridden guidelines of distancing and wearing masks. Um, one pub chain owner in this country, they own about 1,500 pubs here, has come out and said, we're not opening until the guidelines move because um, we need the pub to be a pub experience and not a hospital experience. I'm, look, I'm 100% with you there. Having... Having spent a lot of time in hospitals, I would not say having a beer in the hospital is an experience that I would, you know, volunteer to go and do. Right, so let's start with, now, you and I have already conferred that we have, uh, your, your is the updated version from mine and mm. you have a better way of saying this, but my book, is, well, we're going to start from, but what is intellect? And Aspensky says, intellect is the active aspect of any consciousness. Now, when you told me what he'd written in the next version yeah. up, it was a little different and a little clearer. Can you let us know? Yeah, what it got says there? in mine, he says, but what is reason? It is the inner aspect of any given being. Now we should understand when he says given being, the Dispensky is not limiting that to humans, animals, plants, or anything else, because he's established that there is an inner resonance to everything in the material 3D projection mm. yes that, it, that's why everything he, is a, has has a, some sort of part of a being of some sort yeah and that's why uh, in my because because what seems to be inanimate in uh, to us in the 3d is just the 3d projection of something bigger in other dimensions so we, we won't go back into how he proves that with snails and fingerprints on tables and all this stuff we won't bother with that but you know this this is what he's saying so everything is we have to we have to understand that everything has an inner core you know this inner inner numinous being so i i, I like the change in in the translation and in the wording and do you think he's he's substituted the word it looks like he's substituted the word intellect for reason is that mm. is that consistent I think it's consistent because he, he, in my version it is, yeah. But he does he does occasionally use um, the term intellect, meaning the reasoning process of the mind. What what we in hypnosis and in psychology would call the conscious mind, the mind that does the everyday things. I'm going to walk over there. The conscious mind does it. The unconscious mind. Uh, is then responsible for how you get out of the chair and how you put one foot in front of the other. If the conscious mind had to do that, you couldn't exist as a human being. So reasoning uh, and intellect, he uses both words and he, he almost keeps them separately for, for a reason. But I like mm. this. 
Okay. So he, he follows by saying, in the Earth's animal kingdom, in all animals lower than man, we see passive reason, but with the appearance of concepts, it becomes active. And part of it begins to work as intellect. I have a little problem here because, as we've explained before, there are plenty of animals. I'm well aware that dogs can work things out. They oh, can yeah. work things out. They can work things out without being shown. So I'm, I'm going to suggest that a, do a dog can reason and there is an intellectual capability within, within a dog. Uh, I'm not saying that it's passive at all. I'm saying that the dog is capable of active reasoning. But I get it. I get Uspensky's point. I do. Mm. And he further goes on to say that, that in animals, the uh, intellect is, is kind of in that state of uh, the emotion of curiosity. It's, it's, it's yeah, that it's present as an embryonic, as an emotion of curiosity, a pleasure of knowing. Um, eh, no, I mean, sometimes animals do things for their, you know, for their own benefit. They learn things that are to oh, their own benefit. a lot of times. A lot mm. of times. and But I think I think I like that bit about the emotion of curiosity as for us as well. I think that's, that is the essence of starting to ask questions. You know, yeah, if you have... a pleasure of knowing. Yeah, if you have a pleasure of knowing, you won't just blindly accept stuff. You'll go, why? Why? Yeah. Why? I know, why? Show um, me. Prove it. Yeah, show me. Ex that doesn't make sense. Explain it a different way. And yeah. I think that's that's the essence of of all of us, if we, if we have the emotion of curiosity of of all beings, that's that's the starting point, I think, for mm. for knowledge. Um, and I think that's where Osvensky's going. He said, uh, in man, the growth of consciousness consists of the growth of the intellect and the accompanying growth of the higher emotions, the steady religious Yeah, mind. I was going to say, we, we need to define the higher emotions yes. in Osvensky's. Aesthetic, religious, moral. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to question that. Um, that's your opinion of the higher emotions, uh, Mr. Uspensky. There's, you have, you have no evidence for that whatsoever. And, and I would ask you, why have you chosen those? Because they seem to be anachronistic. Some of them, I would say, you know, aesthetic. Yes. Religious and moral. What moral? Whose morality? Whose framework of morality? By the way, that's changed throughout, throughout recorded history. Uh, for a fact, the morality of ancient mm. Greece was not the morality of ancient Rome, which was not the morality of Egypt. Um, the morality of ancient Rome wasn't the morality of the Celts. The morality of the Celts wasn't the morality of the Persians. It's like, it, th this is a nonsense. He needs to explain that because to say that these are higher emotions implies a universality. And there isn't one. Not when you talk, not when you talk about moral or religious. Why stick religious in there? I don't even see religion as an emotion. I see it as, um, stimulating emotional responses, but I don't see it as an emotion per se. So, so I, I am questioning Mr. Uspensky here. Unfortunately, he's not around to give me the answer. So I'm just going to leave my, my question out there, um, for people to consider. Higher emotions, I would have said that love was the highest emotion, personally. What would I know? I would have thought Ospensky would be saying that as well, wouldn't he? I mean, he'd spent a whole chapter talking about... Well, he does He does it other places, you know. So I, I was kind of surprised why he chose these three uh, to be the 
higher emotions. And why religious? Honestly, what he couldn't have anticipated was that we were all going to break free. Well, most of the, pla of the planet were going to break free from religious. Now, let's not pretend that by religion, Spensky means what we would now talk about spirituality you know it could be anything we we've got this passion now haven't we for um first people's spirituality native american and you know the the first people of australia and south america especially because down in the amazon junkin they've got ayahuasca oh, it's so deeply spiritual so let's not kid ourselves that when espensky writes religion here he means one thing organized religions why that's a higher emotion. I don't even see that as an emotion. But I think spiritual would have, would, would have been a better word. I don't think that he meant that. He would have known the difference. So, so I, I'm, I'm putting the question out there. I don't necessarily agree that they are the higher emotions. But that we, we're now starting to argue about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. I think we should move on to understand that there are some emotions that are ephemeral and they come and they go, but there are some that do affect the way that we perceive our lives going forward, some that are very important to us. I think aesthetics, um, maybe. What do you think? Well, I think what he, I think he misses the mark here when he uses those words because, if you know, further on in the chapter, he starts to talk about the higher emotions in terms of not that they are any different from the lower emotions, it's in terms of their purity. So yeah. I could have an emotion of hate and I could say I hate that person. And that's a, that, that would have a, a mixture of emotions, you know, the, the, um, the feelings I have towards that person other than hate, you know, resentment or, or whatever. It's a mixture. So it's impure. But if I, I could also say I, I hate uh, inequality and it might be, have a totally different meaning. It might be a pure emotion of I just object to it. I mean, it's it's maybe that's not the great example, but but what it's what he says later on is all emotions kind of have this same playing ground, and it just depends on the purity of whether it's mixed with other emotions or not yeah, that, makes it higher uh, or lower. Well, when we come to that, that will you know that that clearly it makes a lot more sense. I mean, even when he says aesthetics, aesthetics is to, is a is an emotion dealing with a response to beauty. But have you never heard this phrase, Mr. Uspensky? I know that you're Russian and it's a very English phrase. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Um, so, you know, what, what's your... He does address that later on in the chapter as well. I think we should, I think we should just pass yeah, that. Yeah, let's move on. Yeah, I, I do too. I, yeah, let's, I let's, I let's get on to the rest of it. Yeah, I could actually have an explanation for it uh, and I, I could like, expanded out but it's it's best done when we come to these um points later mm, on yeah so he, he further or spensky further moves on he says that intellect and, and i i'm be interested to see if it's the same sort of word he uses reasoning or intellect but he says and i'm paraphrasing intellect stimulates thoughts which evoke motion emotion and spirituality is a higher form of intellect evoking the higher emotions but he says we limit the intellect of our human thinking as we expand our intellect with concepts possibilities curiosity outside the limitation we grow in our understanding of knowledge and hence our consciousness expands it doesn't make any sense to me at all and i'm not prepared to waste my valuable life going through it when there are things that are so useful in helping us to 
make better use uh, of our human experience that comes up in this book that for me to spend a long time going on something that I think to me is worthless is, is a silly thing for me to do. All right. Well, we can move on. I will just I will just sum up what I think he means in one yeah, sentence go on, just for yeah. posterity. I, I would I would say that that what we think we know is limited by the logical concepts of the positivistic way of thinking. And that is not true knowledge. True knowledge has no limitations based on logical concepts. It's actually intuitive. Okay. It's it's, it's understood by the intuitive mind. Well, let me, let me just um, put a, a, a little bit of a teaser in here. He does it so much better in Chapter 19. Chapter 19. Okay. All right. Is, well, is, we will, is we will that, hurry along. Is, is that in a nutshell? Oh, my God. Yeah. It's, and he, the, he comes back into his own in Chapter 19 where he, he's, he's, it's almost like he's, he's seen that very paragraph and thought, hang on, I can do better than that. <laughs> and off well, he I'm goes. glad he does. I'm glad he does. It's, so it's brilliant. So anyway, let's let's move on. Okay, let's move on. So the next interesting point he says in my book is intuition grows in the soil of the intellect and of the higher emotions, but it is not created by them. A tree grows in the earth, but it is not created by the earth. And I believe you've got something a little different from our previous chat. Well, I've got um, you know the. A new order of receptivity grows in the soil of the intellect and of the higher emotions, but it is not created by them. And then he does the tree grows in the earth and so on. But he says a seed is necessary, and this seed may be in the soul or absent from it. Now, I'm interested in this. That's interesting, isn't it? Mm. Um, he said the soul, if a soul it may be called, lacking that seed, i.e. inept to feel and reflect the world of the wondrous, will never put forth the living sprout of intuition, but will always reflect the phenomenal world and that alone. So if you don't have that that spark of curiosity, I think, mm -hmm. to explore and ask questions and look at things from different different to what you actually experience them in, in a five-senses sense, like intuiting them Jesus. in the emotions... He's assuming dead. You're a robot. Yeah, he's or assuming. A robot. He, yeah, he, yeah. Well, I have. A, I mean, my only issue then is that we. He knows that every expression of materialism in the in this three D expression of the universe, this this third dimensional expression, belongs to something greater. We're only seeing that little projection of something greater, so that there will be a soul. I. So I. I. You know, I, I have a little issue here, in as much as. It's difficult to use an analogy. We are limited. We're restricted by language. Language is, is an aspect of positivism in itself, for a start. Um, mm. there's, there's, there's no way of doing it. But I, I can't see how everything's got a soul and then some things haven't, just, just, for, just so that he can make a point. Yeah, because he has already said, well, actually, he hasn't said everything has a soul. He said everything has, well, is some grouping or some groups up to some being so as a its function um can vary but it's all part of the one however if we think about artificial intelligence if we think about robots have artificial intelligence so can operate uh doing thinking things but they don't have 
the knowledge of emotions. They they would be quite enjoying watching your cars go around the track uh, on the TV with no one else on the track or etc. Because they're just processing the that car won, that car's faster, that car broke down the facts. I've got news for you. That's how I watch it. I watch with two screens with all the data and the sector timings all juxtaposed to one side. And I'm I'm sometimes watching the race and I'm sometimes watching sector times of the cars that are not being shown to see if they're coming up and if they if they are ah, catching yes. up and stuff like that. And that's the intellectual side. But yeah, but is. if that's all you've got, like you said, without that emotional investment into the event. Yeah, because my emotional it's hardly investment worth is watching. That, that if a certain car is coming up on the car that I'm supporting, my emotion is that I want it to break down. <laughs> so, so yeah, there is. Whereas the ro- I see what you mean. The robot would just be looking at the the timings. Yeah, exactly. But you're saying, well, when the interviews are happening, you you want you want to see, you know, the emotion on the driver's face. You want to you want to understand. I want to see the faces. I do. Yeah. I want I want to see that facial language, because what people say. And that's what I think he's saying. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'm. I want to know what these things are that will always reflect the phenomenal world and that alone. And that's what I'm saying. For having a soul is that seed. So as human beings, we have that soul. I'm asking for an example of something that he claims doesn't have. Well, I'm bringing up the example of a robot. No, he doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't say. Well, there weren't there weren't robots when he wrote this, so let's not have that one. Yes, he talks. He talks about automatons, so he could have okay. he could have used that. However, I I, I do see your point. Because just because that that robot is inanimate to us doesn't mean it is on another plane. Well, that was his point all along. Yeah, just and because that, we so, think it's inanimate. Well, yeah, yeah, we're so, only, we're only seeing a projection. We might only just be seeing a fingertip of the bigger thing as it comes through the three. Remember, he spent half a book explaining that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but he did say that things that things that have acquired experience, like a, a, an old house, for example, has a soul. Yeah. Because of the um, experiences it's, it's accumulated, it then gets a soul. So I don't know. Maybe he's saying that not everything has a soul. However, it doesn't mean that it's it's. Can we just take you know it? inanimate things? Let's just take it. I I don't agree, and I don't think he's explained it. But let's move, let's move it on, and let's let's pretend that some things that are projected into the three D. Um, phenomenal positivistic materialistic uh, experience that we're having of the universe that some of them don't have a soul let's move on all right so next point dispensy is making is emotions serve knowledge that the intellect alone cannot and i think we've already covered this quite a lot for he's, he makes a point to understand the psychology of play it is necessary to experience the emotions of the player to understand the psychology of a hunt it is necessary to understand the emotions of the hunter i think we've covered this yeah, yeah, I, I, I can do this. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm good. Okay, and then he further goes on to say, we understand others when we experience the same emotions, and that's not a, that is not a new concept for Svensky. Um, no. He says, which is why we fall in love with another person. So men understand one another so imperfectly because they live always by different emotions, and when they feel similar emotions simultaneously, then... And then only do they understand one another. The proverbial philosophy of, of the people knows this very well. A full man does not understand the hungry one, it says, the drunkard. Yeah. Look, the point, the, po- 
And the point is that there is no way that rational science could actually investigate this because it's different for every single person's experience. And he does give a lot of good examples. You know, somebody mm. that stands on the seashore. I'm one of these people. I go out to look at the sea a lot um, and just gazes in wonder at that vast expanse, that, you know, that freedom, etc., etc. Um that emotion will not be understood by the, as Spensky puts it in my vision, the stayed stay at home. It won't. Mm. And he puts that great one as well, you know, like um, the idea that Archimedes jumps out of the bath shouting, Eureka, um, uh, won't be understood by, by people who aren't emotionally attached to the discovery of knowledge uh, to the point where they would consider his action insanity. You know, it's different for everyone. So we mm. can't actually quantify this. And this is what he will go on to later on in, in this book, certainly in the next chapter, this idea of not being able to quantify this. And that's why people don't invest in it. We will come on to it. I'm not going to go through. Now, here's a little tidbit that I, I actually smiled at. It says, The same illusion explains the secret power of alcohol over the human soul. For alcohol creates the illusion of a communion of souls and induces similar fantasies simultaneously in two or several men. I, I I smiled at that. I thought... Explain. So I think that's the... When when you're having a drink and you're all relaxed and the alcohol takes its effect, I think you suddenly feel like you're all talking the same language. If you're a sober person looking in at a bunch of drunks talking... You think they they all talking separately and they make no sense, but when yeah. you're the one who is inebriated, you suddenly think that everyone has something phenomenal to say and that you're part of this great conversation. It's it's the illusion. There is that. I do agree there. Yes, I just I just thought it was a, it was a a funny thing for him to put in. Funny being no, funny it was car, not funny because I, I don't imagine um, him ever getting drunk. Not rolling drunk. No, I dare say he probably has. Has the odd the odd drink at night, <laughs> the odd brandy at night, but I can't imagine him out in the pub um, having a, a rollicking good evening. Actually, I'll I'll go back on that. Some of the early parts of this book, I think he must have been drunk when he wrote them. <laughs> You're so harsh, Pete. You're so I am harsh. dreadful. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> moving on. Emotions are the stained glass windows of the soul. Therefore, it has been correctly said that a one-sided emotional illumination cannot give a correct perception of an object. Nothing gives one such a clear idea of things as the emotions, yet nothing deludes one so much. Yeah, because we all have a different colour to our stained glass window. That's what he's saying. Mm. It's different. It's, it's now utterly dependent upon the observer. Perception it will change for each person because we have different emotional stimuli and different emotional responses to the same things. It's only it's only when we're all cased in alcohol that we will have the same perceptions, <laughs> that we, our perceptions seem to join. What is it about alcohol that does that? It actually takes away inhibitions. It breaks down barriers so that we can perceive things as one, well, like a lot of drugs do. I think also it takes away the reasoning mind. The yeah, logic yeah, well, it, it, it does step, it, it does, yeah, it does, it does step aside that it gives, it does swerve around that, doesn't it? So, yeah, maybe. So, we're away. Anyway, interesting. Nothing gives one such mm. a clear idea of things as the emotion 
Yet nothing deludes one so much. And why is it a delusion? What, what is it that what the emotion give to you about a perception of something is delusional? I'll tell you why. It's because your experience is not universal. Your emotional response to something will not necessarily or likely be the same as the emotional response of someone else. People particularly have had children, um, will, and they do, by the way, I, I could give you a billion, literally billions, not exaggerating, billions of examples of this. They think that everybody must love babies. I've got news for you. I've got some, some strong news for you, you people that think it's, it's just natural. Every human loves babies. Ah, oh, ooh, aren't they? No, no, that's not the case. That really is not the case. You have a saying, and it says, uh, no one loves your dog like you do. <laughs> spot it's... on. And that, that's <laughs> spot on. And, you know, but, but people then, but people justify the way that they love their dog, as you put it, by making this generalization that you're not, you're somehow un inhuman if you don't like dogs per se. All dogs, because oh. what they do is they hide their subjective reality. They try to cloak it in some kind of objective truth and where that objective truth does not exist. And that way they don't have to explain themselves. Yeah. Well, I mean, what do you think that with that group psychology of, you know, there are certain emotions that are assumed that you will mm. feel. And I'm going to bring the COVID thing in. Yeah, Are on, you then. supposed to have the emotion of fear because we've yeah, been told this is something to be afraid of? And if you are not afraid of it, singled out as somebody who is stupid, doesn't get it, you know, mm. whatever. But but is there some way that there can be a mass emotion distributed? Yeah, yeah it's called, yeah, of course it can. I mean, it happens all the time. It's called hysteria. Look up hysteria, and instead of thinking of some shrieking woman, find out what the word hysteria actually means. And it and it and it, it does apply to groups. They they do get it. It, it it trans. Now this is a very interesting thing. Is how does it transfer? I mean, this is a question mm. that that this this book actually this whole book serves to give an answer to, in part. I mean, it's not addressing that as a direct question, but the the things that come up in Aspensky's book give us a platform from which we can answer that question. How does that happen? Because it does happen. If you see um, everybody, I'll tell you, here's a great example. I know that people have done it. And there are, there are YouTube clips of people do it. If you go onto a very, very busy street corner in New York City and you just stare in wonder up at the top of a tall building, very, very quickly, you'll have people stopping near you and looking up. And it'll be a while before somebody says, what are you looking at? What are we looking at? What are we looking at? What's going on? It, ha it happens like that. You ever been in a room of people where somebody bored out of their minds yawns? Watch what happens around the room. Even when you say the word yawn, it makes me want to yawn. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think Spensky does address this. He, he does. Examples. He does. He, really he does. does. Shall we go to this example? Yeah, let's go to it. Because yeah. he's basically saying that emotions are personalised and coloured by our yes. personal experiences Absolutely. that allow us to see them from our own standpoint. But he says a snake excites a feeling of repulsion and fear in all mammals. 
By this repulsion and fear, the mammal knows the nature of the snake and the relation of that nature to its own and knows it correctly, but strictly personally and only from its own standpoint. But what the snake is in itself, the animal never knows by the emotion of fear. What the snake is in itself, not in the philosophical meaning of the thing in itself, nor from the standpoint of the man or animal whom it is bitten or made by, but simply from the standpoint of zoology, this can be known by the intellect only. And he's put that in uppercase letters in my book. He has. He has. As, as, he has in well. yours. It's very, very important. Welcome to chapter 19. It's, it's a teaser, isn't it? Back to chapter 18. I think this is interesting. This is, this is this concept that, you know, all animals have this fear, but we personalise it. It has nothing to do with the snake itself. Well, it's, some people are not. Response. Some people don't. Some people don't have them, do they? Um, well, for no, example, they don't. I I would like to, for example, um, discuss about a mammal. He uses the word mammal here. Um, so let's have a look at the uh, mongoose. Is it afraid of a snake? Is its reaction it is, actually? Is its reaction in as much as it will fight and kill a snake? Um, an adrenaline rush of fear, or does it just say, you're not coming anywhere near my territory, out, dead, gone. Because I know that you would eat my young and all the rest of it, and I don't like that, but I'm not afraid of you, and I'm going to kill you. Why do? Why does the mongoose fight the snake? I don't know enough of the zoology to know that, but it's an interesting point to me to ask, does it do it because it's... It, because it can, and it enjoys doing it, or or is it a, a fear-based reaction um, that that stimulates its skills, its particular skill set in being able to protect itself, its territory, and its young by killing snakes? It certainly isn't afraid. Most human beings, most human beings, faced with a cobra in India, a, a killer of a snake. Um, wouldn't react by going on the attack. They'd shriek in fear and hope that they could outrun it. But, um, which, you know, is perfectly reasonable. Most people don't go on the attack. A mongoose faced with a cobra does. And here's, here's the interesting point you're making, or the extension to the interesting point you're making is, why do all mongoose do Each, that? Or, and or, are they, or, <laughs> why do all mongoose do that? And uh, have the attack, and yet all, say, humans have the fear. It's a group thing. It's a group emotion. But mm. it, it doesn't matter which emotion it is. It seems to be held by the, the species as a – some of these emotions are held yeah. at a species and level. Then, and then because we have them at that level, we teach them to our young. I mean, most children, uh, you know, let's say a snake comes on the TV and they feel the reaction of their parents. Mm-hmm. If the parents or a are afraid of it, yeah, they'll be afraid of it. Yeah, or, or a spider. Or mind you, see, this is this is difficult for me because I'm talking to you, and you're in Australia, and in particular, you, I, I know the state you're in, and uh, you're just surrounded by these things. In England, we we got nothing to be afraid of like that, really, and yet we are afraid of them. I mean, most people, you know, don't like spiders and snakes. And what is that? What is that? I I was in I was in um, Dublin found a spider in Dublin. I don't think spiders bite in Dublin either. They certainly don't. But not only was I frightened of it, but the people that were in the house that lived in Dublin were frightened of it. I'm thinking, hang on, you're supposed to be able to come up and sort that. 
Exactly so. I mean, this isn't a this isn't a red back, is it? It's not like a, a funnel web or, or or something like that. You know, it's <laughs> we're, talk, we're talking about a blooming house spider. And yet, when I because I don't iron ever. Actually, when my son's gone off to the army, I know you told I, me I, the I story. It frightens me. It took 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 the iron with him. <laughs> but anyway, when I yes, when I opened up the ironing board um, for the few occasions, there was a bunch of redbacks underneath, and they claim kind of claim from underneath onto the top. Now, look, I am frightened of spiders, and I am very frightened of redbacks, but when I saw them all coming up into the ironing board, it was like, okay, well, i got to deal with this. Whack, whack, whack. You know what I mean? Like my my reaction of fear was overcome more like the mongoose. Whack, 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 because I'm going to get them before they get me kind of thing. No, and that's that, another that, emotion. Yeah, but that is my question. Is that what happens to the mongoose? The difference mm. with the spider is this, the difference in scale. You, your intellect then kicks in and says, hang on. Yes, it's poisonous. And if it sneak, sneaked up on me or, or dropped down the back of my and it jumps. bit me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But all of those things. But it doesn't move like you do. Uh, you can pick something up and smash it to smithereens. You have that I skill. I did, my shoe. If you ever watch, and there, there will be clips on YouTube of a mongoose fighting a cobra, you'll see that the difference in size is the other way. You wouldn't mm. think that a mongoose is going to take that thing on, and yet they do, and they kill it. That's interesting, isn't it? I look at a cobra through a totally different coloured glass than a mongoose does. That's what I was thinking, where this coloured glass comes in, and it's not necessarily just personalised. It could be a part of the... Grouping the species DNA, like, yeah, the, the, the you know, species, what we what we yeah. now call the DNA that Spensky wouldn't have been able to call the mm. DNA, but but that but again, where does that come from? How does that get into the DNA? I mean, you don't see examples of a mongoose effectively taking its young little mong mongoose children out into the bush one day and saying, "Look, we're going to go and find a mongoose today. I'm going to show you how to kill it, and you guys have better be paying attention." Because you're expected to do. Oh, you're going to find a snake, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't believe that happens. I think you know that as the mongoose grows up, it doesn't learn in this silly empirical way that we do. It's it 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 might see its parent do it and instinctively know that it can. Um, what are other examples? Um, birds that nest on cliffs. Eventually, the 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 little chick gets big enough where it's got to fly. It does see its parents flying off the cliff, but one day it's got to make that leap and say, I know how to do this. The, the, parent, the, the, the parent doesn't bring it in front of a, 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 a computer and say, look, have a look at these YouTube clips telling you how to fly. You've got to, you've got to move your wing this way and then make sure that that balance. It doesn't do that. It just says, get off the cliff and open those wings and see if you can actually catch a current of air. You will instinctively, and there's a key word, instinctively know how to do it. There is no teaching it. You, there are no, there are no film clips of, you know, David Attenborough going out with his film crew and getting close-up pictures mm. of a bird going. You don't see birds on the clifftop moving one wing whilst looking knowingly at the chicks and saying it's like this. You do it like <laughs> this. You don't. That doesn't happen. The birds fly off the damn cliff. The chicks are supposed to perhaps watch it. Maybe they're not supposed to watch it, but they do see it. And at some point in their development. They jump off that cliff and hope for the bloody best. Spencer's talking about emotion and intellect as, as different parts of knowledge. Now, I would mm. say the, the watching the YouTube clip is an intellectual exercise. Exercise, it doesn't, yeah. doesn't obviously do that, but yeah. has an emotional response. 
And that's, I want to do that. that. I somehow, want to be off this cliff. Yeah. I want to be off this cliff edge. How much more enjoyable and pleasurable it would be to be free. Boom. Which comes to desire again, doesn't it? That yeah, desire, which we which, which we spoke about before, which yeah, is which, the stimulating yeah, exactly. activ- activator. Yeah. Yeah, of so, will. So of will. Yeah. So yeah. So emotions are are, are very important. From I think I agree with Aspensky. They're a very important part of knowledge. It's not just. I I would go as far as to say that Aspensky is saying that they are the most important part, and I would agree with him on that. I would agree. I would agree with him as well. Mm, so definitely. moving along a little bit onto this yeah, whole theme, Spensky's saying that we attach emotions to ourselves and that they become identified as our personality, yeah. as belonging to ourselves. And at this level, these emotions are trying to establish power over man and interfere with um, establishing a constant sense of of attachment to, to the, higher, the higher self. Yeah, well, he calls it the constant I, capital letter I, and I do not yeah, like no. the I thing. Neither um, do I, so, so let's I, move I'm on. Just, yes. So he says, by liberating the emotions from the personal, from being the personal thing, increases your power for providing knowledge because at a personal level they contribute to delusions, i.e. Um, because personalising the emotion is seeing it through that coloured glass that he talks about. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, entertains conflict between emotions, you know, you, you You've got a load of emotions all vying for top position. I want to do that, but I feel guilty if I don't do my work before I do that. You know, all this backwards and forwards in. So he says the more we withdraw from ourselves by recognising the emotions are not attached to us personally, they're not belonging to us, the more we can truly comprehend the world as it truly is. And I think um, I think that's that's an interesting concept in itself i shall i read shall i read what he says or if i paraphrased it well enough no that was pretty cool I, I i agree with that no i was just thinking you know he says like the cognitive power of the emotions is greater in proportion as there is less of self elements in a given emotion in other words the more color you take out of the glass the purer the emotion becomes and the, and the more valid and vital it, it becomes. You know, the, the, the greater the, the cognitive power. In other words, the greater the understanding. As you, as you take the, the colour out of the glass and it becomes clearer and clearer, then you're better able to understand. And I, I like that little analogy. In other words, take, the colour represents the, the subjective personal view of something. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you take the colour out, when you take the colour out, you're getting closer to an experience that would be universal. In other words, if everybody took their own colours out and looked at the same object, then that would be universal. All right? Mm. We're looking at this, you know, this idea I I like of coloured glass and the colour is slightly different or a lot different for different people, even when they're looking at the same object. So, for example, Steve Irwin, the long, the late Steve Irwin, the naturalist and so on, wouldn't have been as scared of snakes as I am. We know that. We've seen him. We've seen him do it. Or crocodiles. So, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, either way. But the fact of it is, the point is that he's looking at crocodiles and snakes through a different coloured piece of glass than I am. If his mm-hmm. colour 
Um, I would suggest that Steve Irwin has less colour. It's it's a it's a much more faded colour than mine. My colour is going to be quite vivid. I don't like them. Horrible, frightening. Whereas Steve's would be more pastel. And mm. if I got closer to Steve, and then both of us then went down to zero, we'd both be seeing the snake and the crocodile exactly the same way. So do you think what Aspensky's saying here is that emotion is now I'm going to use the word entity, but it may not be the right word, is an entity in itself that we tap into and colour if we personalise it. But the pure emotion without the colour is something that if we all tapped into, we would feel the same way. Yeah. Like it's, yeah, yeah so it's I'm, not something that... It's universal. Yeah, and it's not something we generate. It's something we experience in in some way it seems it seems to be that way and that's what he's that's what he seems to be saying to me yeah because you know how some people can um or you've seen maybe maybe on youtube like i have where you've had lions that have been raised as cubs and then let to the wild and then the person goes out into the wild and this yeah and it jumps on them and it it hugs and the lion hugs them and and all kinds of stuff yeah yeah yeah. and if they felt the same way of, of a general fear of lions, that lion would pick that up. You know, animals do. They pick up fear and they... No, what's really interesting is look at that the other way. What has the lion picked up? It doesn't see prey and it doesn't see a threat. Oh, yeah, yeah. The lion's, the lion's glass has changed and the lion is feeling love. Yeah, so, yeah. So this is, I mean, this is one of the few, you know, the things that I do have about Aspensky when when he, he really belittles the idea of animals having emotions and this, that and the other, and you know, he puts man on this pedestal. Whereas that, the one you just given is a great example. And it's quite clear that that lion loves that guy. I've seen the, the clips. Mm. I've seen plenty of clips like that, you know, plenty. But the, the, the one that's just come to my mind, it was the full grown lion. And it was, it, it was hugging this guy. And you know, a lion is yeah. way bigger than any human being. And the lion was loving it. The lion was really happy. You can, you can see it. You can even feel it from watching a clip on your computer. You can feel that joy. Yeah. So it's that that, lion those emotions, it. those emotions were tapped into by both because love came both ways. They yeah, both absolutely. feeling love. Absolutely. They'd at taken, the same time. They'd, they'd both taken the glass of looking at each other down to a zero color level in you know to use this analogy yeah and i think this is where Aspensky is getting to a little bit further on when he talks mm, about yeah. pure and impure emotions i know and i want us to come to that because this is in, this is this is really interesting from a philosophic point of view that when we get there we i, I want to talk about that you know he he talks about the personal emotions and what we you know what would be beneficial to all of us is to um liberate ourselves from the personal element element you know he says the sign of growth of the emotions is the liberation of them from the personal element and their sublimation on the higher planes now i do want to go through that little phrase Mm -hmm. because literally he's saying we find ourselves irrationally governed by our emotions on this plane but if we liberate those our emotions from the the personal subjective intellectual view and our personal emotion goes back into being part of the greater universal emotion beyond 3d then then we're getting something valuable from the emotion the emotion we're understanding how the emotional growth 
can help us with our experience in the 3D world because we become proactive then and not reactive. Mm. He says pseudo a pseudo personal emotion is always partial, always unjust by reason of the one fact that it opposes it, it opposes itself to all the rest. That's right. So hate um, as opposed to love and and all the other things and so on. Yeah, which is is not is is basically um, mixing mixing the emotions. I think um, mm. when you personalize you, them, you mix them with you, all the others, and and yeah. whichever one is is more powerful takes over, as opposed to them each getting their own mm. uh, run at things. I'm going to I'm going to let you um, run on and do the next couple of paragraphs because uh, while while I um, read a book or look at pretty pictures on my computer because yeah i thought that might be the case because it's hint, it's hinton and it, it's we're on about and we're on about cubes and other dribbly rubbish that i'm really not even remotely into i cannot go from discussion of the emotional content of our human existence to hinton and his stupid cubes which okay well i'm, I'm just for the minutes. listeners i will paraphrase this in Two sentences. This is Hinton's oh, point. This, to study a block of cubes, you start with one and imagine the parts you cannot see and their relations to the others and continue to do this with all cubes until you can get knowledge of the block of cubes. Comparing man from one standpoint, therefore if you, it's like looking at just the cubes from one face, so it's only superficial. True knowledge comes from being able to see from all sides, even those that are hidden. So being able to see man... Uh, from all angles, their emotions, uh, their intellect, rather than and even even the parts that you can't see, and I think that's the emotions that you can't see. You can't see intuition. Um, that's when you get more knowledge, and I think that is his point. Would you agree? That's I have no like. idea. I was I wasn't even listening. Yes, did you go to sleep? Well, sort of. I was thinking of something else. I mean, it was a kind of sleep. I, I went into my own trance world. I, I really would not. All right. So, 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 job done. Yeah. Okay. So uh, now we can move on to more more, more interesting stuff. Uh, yes. Just as it is, is just as it is incorrect in relation to oneself to evaluate everything from the standpoint of one emotion, contrasting it with all the rest, so it is correspondingly incorrect in relation to the world and men, to evaluate everything from the standpoint of one's own eye, contrasting oneself with the rest. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a given, isn't it? I would have thought you know, so. Yeah. It's, it, that's the old judging a book by its cover kind of concept. Yeah, and also judging things by how you feel, thinking that everybody has to feel yeah. the same way as you. This, this yeah. goes on to the baby analogy that I did earlier on. So let's moving on. Aye. So Spensky's still talking about emotional knowledge and he says after talking about, you know, you, you can't look at it from one emotion, he says thus the problem of correct emotional knowledge consists of the fact that one shall feel in relation to the world of men from the standpoint other than the personal, shall feel not only for oneself but also for others. And the broader the circle becomes for which a person feels, the deeper becomes the knowledge which his emotions yield. Uh, I think that's, that is pointing to that concept that an emotion isn't something you own and you produce. It's something you tap into. And so 
if you haven't personalised it and you have these conflicting emotions in yourself to which ones that takes over at that point in time, you have the opportunity to experience the, the emotion from the pure emotion point of view. I think that's what he's saying. Yeah, it's walk a mile in my shoes. It's very fashionable at the moment, very fashionable, for people who are on what they believe to be some kind of spiritual path, whether they are or they are. I can't help chuck the I love the tone here. of voice you use when you're mocking. <laughs> well, I know so many of these, but they are. And, and amongst these people, one of the great fashions of the moment, as well as Kundalini Yoga, is being an empath. It's almost like, oh, oh, well, um, if you're on a spiritual path, you better, you better project yourself out there as being an empath. None of them bloody are. Well, very few of them are. Um, but they know that they have to virtue signal by, by telling everybody that they are, oh, I'm such an empath. That's why such and such affects me in such a way. Oh, I know. I'm the same. Oh, get over it. You're not. True empaths do exist. And these are people, whether consciously or otherwise, do tap into another person's and there are lots of them about there are lots of people anybody that that lives a life of compassion is an empath whether they call themselves or that or not compassion literally is putting yourself in another person's shoes understanding how it must feel to that person and wanting to alleviate a sad condition i agree with you there that there are there are empaths i would say for example mother Teresa would be an example yeah, that, However, that's one that you can say but there are millions believe it or not there are, there there, are. yeah there are <laughs> and i think this yeah, is spensky's point yeah i agree and i totally i'm with spensky here 100 percent. yeah and so his his next point is is uh we've already touched on it He's saying that some emotions weld us to the materialistic, hate, fear, envy, and other emotions and unite us with the whole, love, friendship, sympathy. And these lead man out of the material world and into the wondrous. I'm going to suggest to you that those are better examples of the higher emotions than aesthetics, religion, etc. that he mentioned earlier. Yeah, I'm surprised he left that last, that Few, few pages ago, part in. I don't want to go back to it, here. but I just say that this, yeah. this is far, and, and he does say it in a way that leads us to believe that they are higher emotions. Yeah, yeah. He does, he? says, he? Uh, but not all emotions are of equal potency in liberating from self-elements and liberating from ourselves. Certain emotions from their very nature are disruptive, separative, alienating, forcing man to feel himself as individualised and separate, such as hate, fear, jealousy, pride, envy. These yep. emotions are of a materialistic order, forcing a belief in matter. Um, and there are emotions which are united, harmonising, making man feel to be part of some great whole, such as love, sympathy, friendship, compassion, love of country, love of nature, love of mm. humanity. These emotions okay. lead man out of the material world and show him the truth of the world of the wondrous. Long quote, but yeah. I'm going to take love of country out of there. Yeah, I, I, I think that that is more a personalised one than a, than a real one. I, I think that's where you're going with that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to suggest that it's led to more horror than it's led to really good things. People can do things out of love of country that are, I don't know, um, maybe universally appreciated. Uh, however, love of country has led to war and death on the same scale as religion. I think the two go together. Yeah, it's separative, alienating. Yeah. 
disrupting. Yeah, that's that, that's, that's exactly my point. That bucket, whereas, whereas when he was writing this, love of country and, and nationalism and patriotism was a universal thing throughout Europe and, and America at that point. It really was. So, and he's put it there, and he's put it there as a positive. People would never have objected to that when he was writing. People would have, oh, people would God. think of patriotism of being so fantastic and wonderful. Love of country. Why? Why not love of the entire world? No, you're right. So, well, for our, our point here, we'll take that bit out. But I think his point he's making is that there's some, some pull us apart and some bring us together and that mm. therefore not all emotions are, are of equal, well, they are of equal strength, maybe a bit in op- their opposites of each other. Yeah, the, the, the bit I really like is the bit that comes next. I mean, we've, we've made that point, but this idea that there is a mutability of emotions, that, that mm-hmm. a certain emotion can be in the, in the terrible circle in one sense and in the good circle in another. For example, pride is the one that he uses. Personal pride is a negative emotion. I'm, I'm going to use modern terms. I'm going to use negative. I'm not going to try to copy what he says. Whereas there is, though, an impersonal pride, one where you take pride in the achievement of your fellow man, where we are building each other up. And being, I'm so proud that you achieved that goal. That's fantastic. I really feel what you feel. It's brilliant. We should all feel that for you. Brilliant. It's, it, is, it is personal in a way. But it is more impersonal because it's not putting you at the centre of the emotional field. And I, I like that. I yes. like this understanding and acceptability of the mutability. It does work the other way as well. Some of, some, some of the good ones can, can lead to horror. Well, his, 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 his example of love of country, for example, we've already said. There are, yeah. there is a, the idea of loving your country and working for your community because of that. Um, you know, there's, there's perhaps some good in that, but the larger picture, it usually ends up in us fighting wars. It works both ways. Yeah. And if you try and box things into that's good and that's bad, that's not what Ostensky's saying. No. And and we're coming into a much more holistic view. No, we're, we're starting, we're starting now to come Mm. into this holistic nature of existence, which is where we Mm. want to be. And look, I really like his example where he says, I'll just read it, Christ driving the money changers out of the temple or expressing his opinion about the Pharisees was not entirely meek and mild. And there are cases wherein meekness and mildness are not virtues at all. Yep. So it's, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not one size fits all. I'm coming back to COVID because there's a bit you didn't read before that paragraph. Oh, go ahead. Well, we're, not, we're talking about hatred. There, there, there can be virtue mm. in hatred. Um, Yes. You know, anger, you can have an impersonal hatred of injustice, of brute force. You can have anger against stupidity. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So yeah, but this, but this, but this, this has always been used, by the way, as a contradiction in the in the Christian message. This idea of turning over their money, changing, and, and Christ's anger at what was going on in the temple. Uh, and people have said, but you know, he didn't turn the other shit. But what Spensky is saying, and that Christ does know. By the way, if you ever get the opportunity to learn, not necessarily um, classical ancient Greek, but Koine Greek is, is is simpler, and the Gospels were written in Koine Greek. If you ever get the Greek version of the Gospels, which is 
the original, uh, not Aramaic, despite what some idiotic people might think. Um, if you get those, you'll find a different Jesus than you do in the let's all be slaves to meekness and mildness. He's, he's actually quite sarcastic. He's very pointed. He's as sharp as a tack with, with people who are not listening to the message and not getting it and asking stupid questions. You know, he, he really is. This guy is compassionate and empathetic for those suffering. But what he doesn't suffer is stupidity and foolishness when they when people have been taught differently. In other words, when I've put the, the truth before you and you still choose stupidity, yeah, I am gonna I'm gonna make you understand what that what that results in. It's an interesting Jesus. He's not the same Jesus that you have holding lambs and little children all the time. He did that, but not all the time. He is not a Renaissance oil painting in those four gospels. And I think maybe that's what the Spencer is driving at here. Because oh, it's absolutely. And I mean, he's, he, he literally says meekness and mildness are not virtues at all when faced with certain yeah. things. And the Spensky is pushing through the whole book. Start asking the questions. Stop just accepting mm. stuff. Well, I, I like what came questions. next because the, the, the really great point here is, yes, we can say, yes, there are, there are virtuous hatreds and angers. But what I really like is saying, don't get hung up on this high vibrational rubbish. Have a look. Emotions, Emotions of love, of sympathy, love pity. sympathy, pity transform themselves very readily. Now, that's a hell of a phrase. Very readily into sentimentality and into weakness. And thus transformed contribute, of course, to nescience, i.e. matter. Nescience also means lack of knowledge. Science being knowledge. Matter is ma matter is a delusion and an illusion yep. as well. And this is where it gets to this concept. Yeah, the difficulty of dividing emotions into categories increased by the fact that all emotions of the higher order, without exception, can also be personal. And then their action partakes of the nature of this class. In other words, the horrible ones. So, like he says, even love and pity... And compassion can be over sentimentalized to the point where they do become personal and and this is what I, this is what leads to by the way that to, to coin this modern phrase that I used earlier on virtue signaling look at me look at my compassion look at me look at my look at how empathetic I am I'm an empath as though an, as though being an empath is a thing you know it's like it's like do you have a certificate that you can put on your wall and it's great what Ospensky writes here because it, the modern world is full of this, turning what would be higher emotions into these really personal, look at me, look at how good I am. Oh God, I'm such a high vibration. And I'm so empathetic. And you've turned these things, which in themselves, in the negative, you know, in, the, in a very neutral, balanced way, are pure emotions, whereas... By personalizing them, they're very readily turned, this very same emotion is colored in a negative way. I like, I, I really do love this piece uh, by Espensky here. And I think, mm. you know, he gets a, he, do, he doesn't um, over intellectualize it and he doesn't have to like use mathematical analogies. We're going right to the heart of the matter. And I love it. Mm. Yeah. 
Okay, so Pete, I'm going to leave it there and uh, we're going to continue with this next week. Once again, a great conversation. Thanks so much for your point of views. Yeah, it's lovely. I'm I'm really enjoying it. And, I, you know, I know that we didn't get to finish this chapter this time, but what comes next in Uspensky's discussion, particularly of morality and, and moral systems, I think is something that we shouldn't be rushing through. So I'm glad that we're doing that uh, next week, another section. 100% with you there. So uh, thanks again and thanks everyone for listening.